The following contains plot spoilers, and the comments and opinions expressed herein are for entertainment and commentary purposes only and may not reflect the actual opinions of Geeks Radio or the individual hosts. So don't get mad. It's just a show. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird, it's a plane, it's tons of falling debris heading right towards us and no one cares. It's totally super. Welcome back to Totally Super, the uh, podcast where we review every superhero movie ever made. My name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And today we are uh, we are going to be reviewing 2013's beginning of the DC Extended Universe uh, and, and finally the return to the big screen for Superman, Man of Steel, starring Henry Cavill, Amy Adams, Michael Shannon, Kevin Costner, Diane Lane, Lawrence Fishburne, um, and Russell Crowe. Um, that's directed by Zack Snyder, part of our Zack Snyder retrospective. As we mentioned before, we're going to be doing Watchmen, Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, and uh, finally Justice League, seeing how uh, Zack Snyder interfaces with the DC universe. Um, And with such an all-star cast as this, surely nothing could go wrong. (laughs) Um, This is coming off of um, a break that Superman had after Superman Returns. Superman Returns came out a few years earlier, I think right around 2009. So it had only been like four years. Um, it's, uh, or no, 2006, sorry. So it had been seven years. But it's you should keep in mind that the break between Superman 4 and Superman Returns was something around 20 years. 20 years had passed with there being no Superman. And there had been a couple of times on t- TV, most notably, I guess, would be Lois and Clark and then Smallville. Uh, both of which had been kind of successful, but it was a, those were about bringing Superman down to focus on the man. Uh, Superman Returns, which we will get to, I'm certain, as we go through the other Superman series, Superman Returns decided in a kind of the first movie to do this, and it's now a big trend, to ignore the sequels Superman 3 and Superman 4 and to consider itself to be the new Superman 3 with Brandon Ruth standing, stepping in in the role of Christopher Reeve's Superman. Specifically, it was supposed to be the same one that you were watching way back when. Um, And just Mm -hmm. a new actor playing the same role, same music, everything. And that was the idea of Superman Returns. That character, by the way, um, does return as uh, Superman in the most recent Crisis on Infinite Earths, uh, the Arrow spinover with Arrow, the Flash, Legends of Tomorrow, Black Lightning, Batwoman, Supergirl. Uh, the big TV crossover, not only did they have Superman from the Supergirl show, but as they're going through the multiverse, they have two Wait, amazing say, things. And I think... Did you say spin-over? Is that, that like a cross Might as well be a spin-over, I guess. Yeah, I love the word spin-over. That's a really good term. That's, I'm gonna, we, should, we should develop that term. That's great. Yeah. Copyright and light entertainment 2020. Um, uh, minor spoiler alerts, because this is something that everybody kind of knew going in. For, I, I'm assuming you do not watch the Arrowverse shows on the CW, correct? No, it's just... It's one of those things that I was very excited about the Crisis of Infinite Earths idea. Uh, I think it's brilliant marketing and just just a really cool storytelling device, a great way of honoring all of DC's past. Uh, that being said, in order for me to get into it, there is so much TV I would need to get caught up on that by the time I it's realized, sort of how oh, I feel I about like X-Men to get comics into this, now, right? Yeah. 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 It's, it's too dense to, to, to jump straight in. Well, let me give you three minor spoilers from it. Uh, the first being there are cameos galore up to and including Burt Ward reprising his role as Robin from the 1966 TV show. Um, there, there are cameos galore. There are 
even Smallville. Did you watch Smallville? Uh, a few episodes, but not religiously. So they actually go back to Smallville and have Superman and Lois from, or Clark and Lois from Smallville show up in a scene, and you get to find out what happened to them 15 years later. And That's that really is cool. part of the of the crisis. The two biggest parts of the crisis that were exciting for me was one, Brandon Ruth, who already plays the Atom on Legends of Tomorrow, is also playing the same Superman from Superman Returns, including the music, everything um, in crisis. And you get to see what happens to Superman. It's not a happy story. Uh, 20, 25 years on is kind of what they're saying. The second interesting thing is a side note, uh, and it does have to do with what we're talking about is at one point, have you at least seen an episode or two of The Flash? Yes. And you have seen Justice League, correct? The film? Yes. Yes, okay. So at one point, The Flash runs into the spe- in, into the, fla- the Speed Force, and he gets stuck there for a second, and suddenly Grant Gustin's Flash runs into Ezra Miller's Flash from Justice League. And oh, wow. they have a scene where they're like, they're like, you're Barry Allen? No, I'm Barry Allen. And he looks at, he, he looks at, um, at Ezra Miller's Flash. It's all like decked out in... in like the armor, the very Zack Snyderish armor, and he goes, "Ooh, this looks like it's, it's like so protective and cool looking. I'll bet it keeps you safe." And then the other Barry Allen looks at Grant Gustin's Flash, which has a more traditional spandexy shirt suit, and he goes, "He goes, ooh, but yours looks so flexible and looks like it breathes." And oh, you look so cool. They both say you look so cool, and then they go their separate ways, which is That's so amazing. awesome because what it establishes is that at any point now if you want to spin any of the TV shows into the current movies you can because they have said yes they are all part of the same multiverse and if need be we could cross the worlds which I think is yeah. just fantastic so worth the price of admission which is free on the CW app alone but we're talking about this film um, so Superman Returns did okay it made a profit but it didn't set the world on fire and, and a criticism that we will lobby on when we finally get to it is going to be the action in that one seemed to be superman picking up increasingly heavy things he has to lift a plane then he has to live lift a boat then he has to lift an island and the problem that you run into with superman has always been who does he fight superman like superman yeah. wins all the time no matter who he's fighting and that film dealt with it by you either have him lift heavy things and go ooh wow or you give him some kryptonite and suddenly he can be beat up by regular guys and that's sort of well, it. and it's also not that, just uh it's also not just who's he fighting but how is he fighting uh and what are the limitations to us being able to show what he fights uh like the original superman stuff you you never really saw much aerial combat because they did not have the tech to show that i remember when matrix revolutions first came out and it I had was its just final gonna fight bring between, that up I, oh yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. but yeah between neo and agent smith at the end where they were fighting in the air in the rain one of the things that made me the most excited watching that scene was oh we're finally at the point where we could do superman right and look it's going to be <laughs> there's going to be a lot of issues i have with this film but the final part of the combat between him and Zod, I thought really was a fantastic example of using the technology that we have now uh, in order to make an actual exciting aerial chase scene uh, between two flying okay. foes. That's fair. That's fair. Um, so Zack Snyder was brought in having done um, Smallville, most no- not Smallville, sorry, uh, Watchmen, most notably, which we just covered last week. Um, and mm-hmm. they decided, okay, what he did well in Watchmen, which was an interesting, as we talked about on the podcast, an interesting failure, I guess you could call it, in that people, critics and people were very divided on it. It ultimately did not strike the chord it was supposed to, but darn it, was it visually 
really, really, really interesting. And could that be added to to something with with the epic feeling of Superman? It's also really important to to take note of the fact that this movie is is produced by Christopher Nolan. And originally, this was supposed to be in the same universe as the Dark Knight trilogy. Batman v Superman was at one point supposed to have Christian Bale as Batman who can't deal with the fact that there's a Superman out there. That was the original Mm -hmm. idea when this movie came out, that we're dealing with a world where Batman is already in Gotham and it's Christian Bale's Batman. So Mm -hmm. the, the sense of oneness with that film, including Hans Zimmer on the score, include lots of things. Um, you really have a, the, the the tone, the mood. This was supposed to be part of that very serious um, Dark Knight trilogy world. And that's the tone that is being struck, even though the Dark Knight trilogy is now not part of this DC extended universe. So that's where we are coming off of that, coming off of that trilogy, which was an enormous success uh, hitting Man of Steel. And uh, I guess at this point, I we need our uh, erstwhile super podcaster, Arthur, to give us a plot. Yeah, it is. Before the plot, I just got to say, it is interesting. Uh, I hadn't realized that Zack Snyder had pretty much just finished Watchmen when he put this together. When you consider that Watchmen, the comic, was meant to be a very cynical subversion of, like, traditional comics in, and Superman in particular. And, you know, for whether or not Watchmen the film did well... Uh, I feel like Zack Snyder was pretty faithful to the original concept uh, in his film adaptation of it. And so it is an interesting decision to take the person whose outlook worked very well for a very cynical subversion of Superman and then put them at the helm of Superman. And how did that turn out? Well, let's find out in this plot. Yeah, yeah. Man of Steel. Our story begins, as all Superman origin stories do, on the planet Krypton, where Jor-El and his wife, facing a planet doomed to destruction, place their infant son in a ship bound for the stars. There's an added element this time, though, as we meet General Zod, who has tried to overthrow the Kryptonian Council in the name of preserving genetic purity, because the only thing more villainous than a megalomaniac, I hate that word, the only thing more villainous than a megalomaniac is a fascist megalomaniac. Zod and his cronies are banished to the Phantom Zone, and the ship carrying young Kal-El takes off just as Krypton is destroyed. Young Kal-El lands on Earth, where he is taken in by humble farmers Jonathan Pa Kent and Martha, my mother's name was Martha, Kent. Here we diverge again from the story we're familiar with. When child Clark rescues a school bus full of children, including those who bullied him from drowning, he is not praised by his father, but rather chastised because he revealed his secret abilities. Eventually, Jonathan does show Clark the spaceship where he came from, revealing he is not of this earth, which is part of why Jonathan is convinced that the world is not ready to accept a being like Clark. He doubles down on this belief when, threatened by an oncoming tornado, he forbids Clark to rescue him, choosing to die rather than have Clark reveal himself. Clark, grieving and confused, goes on walkabout, where he has a series of misadventures involving burning oil rigs and douchebags and bars, before he winds up in Antarctica, where the wreckage of an alien spacecraft has been discovered. Clark sneaks on board the craft to investigate, where he runs into intrepid reporter Lois Lane, who is also on the case. Clark learns more of his origins as a, crypto- as a Kryptonian, and rescues Lois from the ship's security systems. This prompts Lois to do a deep dive into the story of this alien ship, and more importantly, the alien who saved her life. She eventually finds Clark on his farm, but he convinces her not to reveal his secret, as the world is not ready. Suddenly, an alien ship appears in Earth's orbit. It's Zod and his minions, freshly returned from the Phantom Zone. They issue Earth an ultimatum, surrender, surrender Kal-El or face destruction. Clark, wearing his Kryptonian uniform, it stands for hope, turns himself into the American army. He and Lois go up to Zod's ship, 
where they learn his true plot to use the information that Jor-El encoded into his son's DNA to completely terraform Earth into a recreation of Krypton. Humanity is not expected to survive the process. Lois and Clark escape, and after an explosive battle with Zod's minions in downtown Smallville, Clark, now called Superman by the army, convinces the military to trust him. They launch a two-pronged attack. Clark destroys the terraforming world engine, while the army leads a suicide run against Zod's ship, causing a chain reaction which sends his minions back to the Phantom Zone from which they came. Zod, left with nothing and in a fit of rage, attacks Clark, and the two super beings fight, pretty much decimating Metropolis in the process. The battle ends in a train station, where Zod uses his heat vision to threaten a human family, and Clark is forced to break Zod's neck in order to save them. The story culminates with Clark telling the army that he's going to help humanity, but only on his terms, and there's nothing they can do about it but just trust him. He takes a job as a newspaper reporter at the Daily Planet in Metropolis. Lois greets him with the admittedly well-written, ambiguous phrase, Welcome to the Planet, Fiend. There's a lot of plot in this film. Um, there's a lot of plot. Film Not is... a lot of it has to do with Superman. Yeah, there's there's a real sense of, of trying to create the world in which Superman lives. And you'd think that that is their attempt to create the world that the DC Extended Universe is going to be in, when in fact, most of this is jettisoned by the time we get to Justice League. Um, well, they do spend we, a whole lot of time on Krypton, uh, only they, to have... They do. Yeah, only to have Krypton pretty much... To, I mean, it would have been one thing if they were spending a lot of time on Krypton and then somehow ended up with the world-building machine, you know. Like, even in the comics, you've got Kandor, the Kryptonian city in a bottle, where Krypton society is still preserved. Uh, but the fact that this movie ends with a pretty definitive thing of, no, Krypton is destroyed and it is never coming back, uh, it does make sort of all that we've learned about the society, which also was not that fascinating or intriguing to begin with, it kind of makes it all moot. Yeah, I think that there's a real sense these days that if you're going to have a film that that is an action film. You have to start with some kind of stinger at the beginning that is the action scene to start the film. And mm -hmm. given that we're going to start this film with Clark, at, you know, Clark as a baby, and we're going to be retreading ground that we already know about how Clark, you know, ends up where he does. I think the idea that you need to put an action scene at the beginning of the film, because then there's going to be very few action scenes for like an hour is mm -hmm. something that the and and the action scenes they give you uh, i guess not an hour like a half hour but the action scenes they give you later is like oh look there happens to be an oil rig it's sort of like that buildings on fire scene from spider-man like we need an action scene here look something's on fire yeah. i think that there is there is a, a feeling that we need to show that this film is epic and and weird and new and different and i don't mind spending some time on krypton frankly i think that krypton is visually very interesting um even though mm -hmm. and look if anybody here has not seen the honest trailer from Man of Steel, watch it. It's 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 incredibly scathing. It's really good, um, but it does have make a point that it looks a lot like Avatar. It does look yeah. like if the if the if the Navi had been given a chance to become a technologically advanced society, this is what they would look like eventually. Um, mm -hmm. It's the the designs are very similar, and that's fine. Um, I do really li I like Russell Crowe here. Russell Crowe is, yeah. is an actor who I am hot and cold on, and this is a, a fairly thankless role, but he does a pretty good job here, as does... as he and I a surprising the name amount of, the of who, to it. Yeah, and, and I forget the name of the actress who plays, um, who plays his mom as well, but she is also doing a really, really good job in selling the, dare I say, humanity of this situation, which I think is really important. Um, and so I don't mind the Krypton stuff as much. Um, you're right. It does all end up being moot. It does sort of seem like 
like it's there you can tell it's there to be an action scene because you want an action scene there it's also super convoluted it's the worst part of the movie being introduced right away the intergalactic politics and the codex and the the genetics i never quite understand it i sort of understand yeah, but i like I, is it i mean like, is it dna that they're gonna the put very... in the babies it's, it's a skull yeah. though like it's weird well, focusing on krypton right at the beginning i didn't mind it as much it's the fact that the whole kryptonian philosophy and politics and all that continued to come back throughout the film uh like what you just said all of that convoluted stuff about oh zod wanting to you know terraform earth in its own image or things like that it's you spent a lot of time in the movie talking about that and not making it really clearly when honestly, thematically, uh, you know, essentially what Zod is doing for the story is he's forcing Clark to have to make a choice to stand up for Earth. And, you know, it's forcing Earth to trust this new Superman who just defended them from aliens. You could have achieved all of that by Zod just wanting to take over the planet and become its overlord. You don't need to worry about terraforming Krypton or all of those things. Like everything that is important for Superman's character, you could have achieved just by making Zod a little bit more of the old school villain. Yeah, I agree. I think that, and if you wanted to make him a little more modern, you could say that his problem is that he thought that he also wants to save Kryptonian society. So he wants to terraform another planet and everyone's like, you can't do that. That's horrible. You're going to kill the people on that planet. And he's like, it's them or us. We can't let our society die. They decide not to do it and then their society dies and then he wants to terraform Earth. I don't want to rewrite the movie, but that's much cleaner than... Oh, yeah. nobody cares about nobody cares about whether or not they're actually terraforming another planet. It's just a matter of getting the genetic code from the codex. But that's only some of the code. Like he doesn't want he wants to get rid of weaker families. And I don't know if they're mm -hmm. in the codex or not. And why is the codex a skull? And you know what I mean? It's 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 I don't. And then this, there are babies and, and Clark is the only natural baby born. I, this aspect you, of the like, movie, now, it strikes me very much as um, there's a very common thing that happens in uh, role playing, like with Dungeons and Dragons, um, is if you've got a dungeon master who spends a whole lot of time creating their world and creating the backstory of the villain and a very complicated society and everything behind it, and they are so proud of it. But then when the adventure starts, all the players want to do is actually just go fight the monsters. And like you spend a lot of time creating the backstory and then but it's only once you start playing the game it, that you find out whether or not the backstory is actually interesting. Uh, yeah. And the good dungeon masters, if they find out that the backstory is not interesting, will jettison it um, in order to give the players what they want. Um, this strikes me more as a case of somebody saying, nope, I spent time on this backstory. So damn it, you are going to sit there and you are going to learn about this backstory. Backstory. Which is not to say that it's all bad. Uh, let's be no. very clear that that we get the relationship between Russell Crowe and Zod, uh, Michael Shannon, and I think that's very good, actually. And the look of Krypton is is very interesting. It looks appropriately alien. And so you get a sense of, you know, that carrying forward onto the ships that come later. There are good things here. I'm not hating it, but you're right. It does end up being moot. And I do kind of want to just get to the Superman story. That's why I'm here. Mm -hmm. And Speaking here's, yeah, of which, that, that's it exactly. Yeah. That's my, that's one of my major issues is, so you're making this a reboot. You're making, you're doing the origin story all over again. That's fine. Um, but if you are essentially making movie number one about Superman, then you really need to make it about just Superman. Now, if you wanted to do a sequel or maybe movie number three in which we've already really understood who Clark is as a character and really delved into that and then bring in this whole Kryptonian society, that I think could work very well. But you don't do that in the first one. It's like you said, we're, we're just here for Superman. Well, I think we're at a point where... 
again, we haven't had Spider-Man um, Homecoming yet here, where it's one of the first movies where they've just said, hey, we know you know the origin. Let's just go. Mm-hmm. And I think that and I, I think it's fair that we had not seen the Superman origin on screen since the 70s version of Superman since 79. And yeah. there might have actually been a bunch of kids at this point that, you know, they know that Superman wears a cape and he's strong and he flies, but they don't really know the story. And the idea is, okay, can we bring the story down to an emotionally human level? They're really trying to. And again, this is supposed to be part of the Dark Knight universe. So what did Dark Knight do? They're like, let's spend, let, look how it's structured. It's you, you see adult Clark doing his thing, but then there's a lot of flashing back to, to kid Clark and, and how the, eventually those two stories, you know, coalesce into one. I mean, it's, it's structured unbelievably like uh, Batman Begins. Mm, it's a, a lot point. like Batman Begins tonally structurally with the flashbacks to the kid presenting the you, you don't just start off with like hey here's the death of the parents like that happens sort of halfway through the film in a flashback it's like it is absolutely being like in that template and then Snyder's putting a stamp on it but I think that the entire DC extended universe when we finally get to all of it a complaint will be that a lot of it is you know, there's not a lot of color and it's a little bit it's a little bit dour and it's it seems to be stuck in this this darkly introspective mood all the time. And mm-hmm. and I think a lot of that is because of the decision to put Man of Steel in the Dark Knight trilogy universe and you go, well, Which, let's just do Man of Steel in the same way. And I, I could think see that why the a studio is, this is not that I could see why a studio would do that because, you know, Batman Begins was a tremendously successful film. Um, here's the problem. And this kind of goes into my major issue with the film. Um, doing a Batman Begins like take for Batman worked real well because it was essentially I mean, it was essentially saying, let's take a story that already is about a quote unquote regular guy in a pretty gritty situation. Like it's a film noir, hard boiled detective kind of genre already. And let's make it a little bit darker and grittier and make it even more human. And that worked. Like, the nature of the Batman comic lends itself to the treatment that Batman Begins did. Superman is not that. Um, You could make an argument that one of the problems with Superman as a comic is that it is very specifically, sometimes way too simplistic. Superman is not human. He's um, more than human. The themes, uh, you know, Superman, it's a very idealistic tone. Uh, You know, I always liked the thought that in Marvel, we looked to Captain America because he represented what was best about being American. Superman, we always look to Superman because he represents what's best about being human. Uh, And so to take that and then try to say we're going to make it darker and more quote-unquote realistic is actually to, it is to completely subvert the original concept. Which, now, granted, you can do that. You can subvert the original concept. Watchmen did it fantastically. Um, but to subvert the original concept and then say, hey, it's the original concept, that's that's where I think things sort of start falling apart. Yeah, absolutely. I think that one thing, I guess we can just call it out here, but that, that Honest Trailer asked the question at the, at the end, why can't a Superman movie just be fun? And yeah. that's a that is a, a a real that's a real question I think that deserves pondering. In that Man of Steel spends a lot of time going, it really sucks to be Superman. Man, oh yeah. man, does it suck to be Superman? You have to have a horror show of a childhood where you see through everything, and you have to be bullied the entire time, and always have to hold it back, and everyone hates you all the time, and then. 
you're tortured and you have to murder and like there's no he is having a terrible terrible life his life is awful and they add awfulness to his life because now he's on walkabout and it's even more awful and there's i don't know i kind of didn't want that for clark i understand that the need for that for bruce but when i think of you know wonder woman for instance Diana Prince has a, you know, despite the tragedy in her life, which is significant, she has, like, she loses her home, she loses her island, she loses her mother, she loses, you know, her boyfriend, she can't die, so she loses the world that she's in, and yet, you get the sense she's an archaeologist, she's kind of having fun doing that, she's out there doing, mm-hmm. you know, she's, she is a collector of antiquities. She has a, a vibrant and and fulfilling life that she enjoys. If she didn't have to be you, Wonder Woman out there, she'd be just fine being out there being Diana Prince. And you in get this the case, sense in the in the comics, that both that's a really good point. That both like um, in the comics, you frequently get the sense that both Diana Prince and Clark Kent, more often than not, you know, they go home at the end of the day, and as they're getting into bed, they think to themselves, "That was a pretty good day." Like, yeah. not all the time, but in general, like Bruce Wayne, I don't see Bruce Wayne frequently saying that was a pretty good day. But yeah, but for <laughs> Clark and Diana, <laughs> for Clark and Diana, that is kind of their character. And I think that the optimism is part of what gets lost in this. It becomes yes. a sort of a stalwart, a, a stalwart, you know, I'm doing this because I have to. And I and I think that it's a shame. I, You know, I, I'm already feeling myself taking a big fat poop on the movie, which I don't want to do because I, in its moment to moment drama, I am actually enjoying it more than I remember enjoying it. I think that Kevin Costner, despite being the opposite of everything Pa Kent is supposed to be, is playing his version of Pa Kent really, really well. And I feel very well. Well, you know, why the, don't we the, let's let's talk about the stuff that the movie did right? Because you're right, there's a lot that it did right, and then so we can make sure that we get that, and then we can go back into talking about what we didn't like. Sure, I would like to, if we can, save the discussion of the action of the movie until the very end, because that is not something I think that can equivocally be placed in the did right and or did wrong exclusively column. So if sure. we can leave that till the end, I the first thing I want to say is um, is the cast right. The cast is is very capable in what they're doing. Um, I enjoyed Henry Cavill in the role. Yeah, I think that there's there's a sense that the man is not a good actor, and he's. I mean, he's not going to win any awards, but he. I think. Why? If you have you seen The Witcher? Have you watched The Witcher? I assume I you have. Doing Renfrew. The Witcher. Yeah. So. One could watch The Witcher and go, you know, the way that you might in Early Angel go, that guy's not a really good actor. He's got a great presence, but not a sort of an Arnold Schwarzenegger type. If you were to watch The Witcher followed by Man of Steel, which I am halfway through The Witcher and I'm watching Man of Steel, you go, oh boy, no, this is this guy's capable of playing absolutely, completely and totally different characters. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely zero Clark in The Witcher. And watching them back to back gives me an immediate sense of, oh, this guy's actually pretty darn talented. And and no, that I think that sense. it's it's easy to go, oh, he is not giving a lot of depth. Well, Superman is meant to be arch- archetypical, not not personal. So that is what he's asked to give is what he what he is mm-hmm. clearly giving here. Um, we normally save this going through character by character by the end. But let's um, I guess we can do it here. This is a good enough place to do it. Um, do you also enjoy the character or do, do you want to say that the question of the character of Superman to the end, too? I think that's fair. 
Um, but we'll do the others. What do you think of Amy Adams as Lois Lane? I really liked her. Um, I mean, in general, I like Amy Adams. Uh, I think she's a very capable actress, and there is a uh, there is just always a warmth to her. Uh, I mean, again, not necessarily an Oscar worthy performance, but I I always like her when she's on screen, uh, and that's the same with Lois. Um, you know, a very different Lois Lane. Uh, you know, no less plucky, but uh, but definitely a softer Lois Lane than in the Christopher Reeve series. Uh, but I felt it worked. Yeah, I feel like Amy Adams is such is a perfect choice here in that she always gives off um, and forgive this word, a traditionally soft femininity in everything that she does. She always gives off that sense of of she's going to be your comforter. She's going to be your. You know, she's gonna she's gonna stroke your hair as you as you deal with the pain that you're I mean, going there's through. There's a reason and, why she did such a good job playing an actual real life Disney princess in Enchanted. And yet she also always exudes intelligence and ambition. Yes. Um uh so so there are very few actors who can do immediately that. And she does. She does not you know, when you look at Margot Kiddo Margot Kiddo or some a lot of the portrayals of Lois Lane is, you know, let's do her as so, sort of your 1940s pitapata girl, you know, and 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 that is a way to do it. Um, there's also been a lot of of let's be super touchy feely. This she manages to do both at the same time without losing the power of either one. I think that she is giving mm. A, a performance that is giving you both versions of Lois Lane that you want at the same time. And I would dare to say that she is the, the second best thing about this film acting wise. I think we're about to get to the best thing of this film acting wise. But w- would you say that she is certainly a strength and a, a, yes, an addition? To and I would also give a shout out to uh, if you want to see her um, really playing like a plucky, strong character, like that intelligence that you were talking about. Uh, ironically, her turn as Amelia Earhart in uh, Night at the Museum 2 Ooh. Battle of the Smithsonian is wonderful. And like the, the film's worth watching for what she does with it alone. Oh, man, I forgot she did that. I want to rewatch that now because I just hearing Amy Adams, Amelia Earhart sounds perfect. It sounds just yeah. perfect. Um, okay, my opinion: the best performance in the film. You can debate me if you want. Uh, Michael Shannon as General Zod. Cool. Talk about that. Um, I just saw Knives Out, and I don't. Have you seen Knives Out? I have not yet. I really want to. So he's in that as well. I don't. I've never seen Michael Shannon do an interview, but he might be crazy. <laughs> he might. <laughs> he might be actually dangerously crazy. Because I have a feeling that if this man were to walk into McDonald's and order a Big Mac, I'm going to get a Big Mac. Like, it's just like, he's so intense and angry. And he, the, the commitment, because what he has to do and say, keep in mind, is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a wonderful, uh, again, honest trailer for Harry Potter where they talk about Shakespearean actors having to say all the spells. Having yeah. to go, about a cadaver, <laughs> and, and, like, and having to do that. The stuff he has to say, I will get the codex from you, Cal. <laughs> Just like, the world engine, bring it online. And the, 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 the inherent silliness of the things he has to say, he is 150% committed to how upsettingly intense he's going to be, no That's matter true. how I never silly. Never doubted his he, sincerity. No, he is. He is so. He is a special effect. He is to dark intensity what Jim Carrey is to over the top comedy. 
the every uh, moment he's on screen, I'm afraid he's going to climb out of the screen and punch me in the stomach. Not the face. The face is dramatic. <laughs> he's the guy who's going to walk by you and just boom, hit you with the solar plexus and walk away. That's me. That's just mean. Yeah, where the teachers aren't looking. Like that is that 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 is this guy. It is he is such such a pleasure to watch just be the most evil bad guy. And I you know, it's interesting because Zod was played so so definitively by Terrence Stamp as sort of an aloof, almost dare I say to pull in Trek off for a minute, an, an almost Romulan character who just oh, stands yeah. aside as everyone oh, dies around him and he doesn't care. And to, to, to replace that with this very American actor who is just going to murder you, not you, Cal, you the audience goer. Is yeah is such he's such a presence that I absolutely like it would be easy to go how the hell does this guy yes he's a trained fighter I guess but doesn't he have like eighteen hours to go from I've never had powers to being as good as this guy who's been practicing his whole life and yet yeah. you totally buy it because yeah I'm surprised that Michael Shannon didn't actually develop powers to do this film. <laughs> Uh, along those lines, that's a, that's a really good that's a really good point. The uh, the first interpretation of Zod was very much the aloof aristocrat. Um, a few times during this, I actually got the sense of this Zod is uh, especially in you know when he starts talking about genetic purity and everything, but also the anger behind his conviction. Um, this Zod has a very neo-Nazi quality to him. Oh yeah, you know it's a yeah it's a very different kind of villain. Um, I mean there are some there are some villains that you know when given silly things to say uh, will do it in a way that is charming because you can sort of seeing the actor having such a good time behind behind it. I still stand by my belief that uh, Batman and Robin the film would have been made uh, a wonderful film if you had just cast Patrick Stewart in the role of Mr. Freeze because the, without changing a single line of dialogue because he would have so much fun with it. Whereas Michael Shannon's approaches, you don't see him having fun with the role. You see him committing to the role 150%, uh, which also works. Yeah, I feel like like if you were to if you were to have messed Zod up, I think that this film crashes and burns, mm-hmm. frankly. Well, you spend a lot of time with Zod in this film. And yes, y- you have to believe that this man is going to be a match for Superman. And frankly, it is the only character outside of Batman. And yet they kind of repeat these the, these char- these acting beats with, I think Ben Affleck probably watched Michael Shannon do this. Um, you Before you get Batman in there, I can't think of another villain, even the original Zod, who seemed like this person is, is a match for Superman, physically, intense, like mm-hmm. when it comes to intensity, that this guy, yeah. Superman better watch his back. And immediately, I feel like Superman better watches back with this guy. And it, it, it I don't want to say elevates, but it supports the film. This, the film is a film that feels like it's constantly under the threat of collapsing under its own weight. And the reason it doesn't is because the structure is being supported by Michael Shannon's performance. Mm, that you're like, that. No, no matter what's happening, you're like, holy crap, this guy is in real trouble when Zod gets to him. He's in real trouble. Poor Clark when he has to face Zod. And that that looming threat really carries the the where you might get a little bored watching the stuff happen knowing that that's on its way you know it's like the titanic right you always know that this ship's going to hit the iceberg you know that zod's eventually going to get to clark and it's just going to suck for clark and yeah. i think that that's important um kevin costner and diane lane as mom pa kent um 
fine job, right? I think that they're they're yeah. doing exactly what's expected of them, no more nor less. Um, but uh, Kevin Costner delivers a so earnest performance. I yeah. want to I want to know what what do you think? What do you think? Not of their performances because I think that neither one of them are doing you know. Uh, they're they're both giving a good job. They're very good actors doing very good work. And Kevin Costner has been criticized for being a, not a very good actor. And I think he mm-hmm. is not only a good actor, but shows that he's a good actor here. He the man can act, and he Cost- he's doing Costner a good job. Costner is one of those. I think there is he has made some uh, some choices and roles where uh, he did not do well. Um, you know, so he has you know he's not an actor with unlimited range. But if you put him within his range, he does very very well with it. Um, you know, now some would argue that his range is pretty much farmers and baseball players. Uh, But even if that's (laughs) That's the case... He does really, really well playing farmers and baseball players. I also think that, that Kevin, 2013 Kevin Costner is a is a, a damn sight better actor than 1989 Kevin Costner. Sure, he's 100%. got more presence, pre, pre, yeah. presence in 89, yeah. but he there is there is such interiority there, in yeah, this character. There, there is with with his uh, Pa Kent. There is his outside is very quiet, and yet it is so clear. There is so much going on underneath the surface. Yeah, the way he delivers the line, "You are my son." Tell me that man can't act. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. I'm I he, he breaks me a couple times in the film. I believe yeah. him. Um, so they're doing a good job. But what do you think of the character? Of oh, specifically man. Pa uh, Kent. So here, specifically Pa Kent. Um, I mean, I got all right. So first, I've got to. I have to preface this with um, because I'm gonna I'm gonna talk a lot about how this movie is not real Superman, and I recognize the irony of saying that uh, after we just did a podcast on Star Wars, where I said the thing that bugs me the most is when people say, "Oh, this is real Star Wars," or "This isn't." Uh, but hey, audience, if you don't like it, we will give you a money back guarantee. Whatever you pay for money this back podcast. guarantee. Yeah, uh, there's a, <laughs> you there's don't a like great, that uh, Arthur has changed his tune. We will give you there's a hundred percent back of what we received from you to get this podcast. Okay, go. On. <laughs> uh, in debate, there is a logical fallacy called uh, "no true Scotsman." Uh, which essentially comes out of uh, you basically changing the definition of something to suit your your sense. Uh, for instance, it, it came from somebody saying, no true Scotsman wears underwear underneath their kilt. And then someone saying, well, my... Uh, sorry, let me take that back. Uh, somebody says, no Scotsman wears underwear underneath their kilt. Somebody says, I'm Scottish and I wear underwear underneath my kilt. To which the response is, well, no true Scotsman wears underwear underneath their kilt. Uh, and that is a logical fallacy that I acknowledge and I'm 100% going to apply right now uh, because no true Pa Kent when faced with the question what was I supposed to do let them drown no true Pa Kent answers I don't know maybe like it. it's the uh, the thi- uh, this goes into the whole thing Th- that was the moment in the film where and you know me normally I'm pretty laid back about stuff like that and you know I love taking people I, I love when people take different views of things or try something different that was the that was the moment in the film uh when i was watching it going oh i'm going to be really angry with this movie when it's over i'm, I'm a little bit angry now i have a feeling i'm going to be very angry with it when it's over um, arthur i think that you do i think that you have nothing to worry about there's no chance that this film plays cavalier with innocent human lives yeah, it's gonna be fun. true yeah <laughs> Um, um, you know, there's been a lot of there's been a lot of articles written about uh, how Zack Snyder um, he directed the Fountainhead, which was sort of uh, Ayn Rand's manifesto, and it's very clear he is in he is a follower of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Uh, which I will also admit that the majority of Ayn Rand's philosophy I've learned from playing Bioshock, uh, but it essentially is uh, the philosophy of objectivism 
which basically says that the only moral way to act in life is according to your own self-interest. That's not to say that you can't help other people, but that if you do, it needs to somehow also help you as well. And no, and this movie doesn't come straight out and say it, but if you know that in the back of your mind, you start seeing it peppered through a lot. Like even what Clark said at the end, um, he's like, yeah, I'm going to help Earth, but I'm only going to do it on my terms. Uh, part of Ayn Rand's philosophy is people who are given tremendous gifts, their responsibility is not so much to use it to help society, but to you, but to basically follow their own vision and, you know, damn the consequences uh, beyond that. Now, to, to her credit, her belief is that society overall does benefit from that. Uh, you know, it's sort of the laissez-faire capitalism approach to moral philosophy. Um, but, uh, you know, I, but it's so not Superman. I, I mean, I, at, at the end, there's just no other simple way of saying it. It's just like, that's, that's not the soups I grew up with, uh, who's always a about self-sacrifice well, so and I've, I've had some time to think about this and and mm-hmm. i'm singing a different tune than i probably did when i first saw the film and what has started to occur to me when i think about this film is that pa kent is in a real tough situation right um mm-hmm. you have his son imagine that his son is a nuclear weapon that will kill a million people and as long as he doesn't jostle his son around too much, then those million people are safe. And he's thinking to himself, well, I need to... Ma-. And his son is safe. His son would die by exploding and killing a million people, and a million people would also die. And he's in a situation where he goes, if I jostle him too much, there's a, I believe there's a fairly good chance that he's going to explode, kill a million people and himself. And then a bus with 10 kids, you know, 20 kids, falls into a lake. And his son, who is also a nuclear weapon, jumps into the lake and starts manhandling the bus. And when he comes out, the son's like, what am I supposed to do? Let him die. And he's between a rock and a hard place at this point going, well, of course you don't want to let them die. He doesn't say, yes, you should. He says, I don't know. Maybe Mm -hmm. he's saying that he's saying that, you know, clearly in the short term, the better thing to do is to was to have saved them. However, if that had resulted in you blowing up and killing a million people, then would it have been worth it to save those 10? You know, there's there's a two different philosophies next to each other. The first being, you know, the the end justifies the means or or, you know, or or can you always take a bird's eye view of everything, you know, and let the you know, can you kill these can trade lives, kill these 10 people in order to save these hundred people? Does that make you morally bad for killing these 10 or allowing these 10 people to die? There's that question. And that's a philosophical question. But I, um, as I've mentioned in my other podcasts, I work in healthcare, and there's also a term called triage. And triage is when you are in a an emergency situation, especially when you're in an emergency situation where there's just not enough resources to go around, you have to decide at that point that some lives you save and some lives you can't. And you could have a situation where there are five people and you could save all five of them, but one of them you could spend all your time trying to save and they might survive if you do. But if you ignore that one and let that one die, you could definitely save these other two over here. So the things you have to look at is, is, is ultimately how many lives can you save and not save? And that's a situation you, I'm sure that, that, that field medics in wartime have to face this sort of thing 
all the time. It's a, it's a, it's a, unbe- it's an unbelievable, it's no, it's no wonder that Pa Kent walks around with a dour look all the time if this is the way that he's feeling. Because he is in, if you, and I think this movie is, is, is asking this question a lot. What it would be, what, like, like, and it's the end of this. What would this be like if you really think about it? It's that last part. If you really think about it, what would it, and that's, I feel like that was the question when they sat down in the room. If you were Paul Kent and you had a son and you knew that son was Superman and yes, he wants to save these 10 kids, but you know that he's going to completely upend everything the earth thinks about itself. Do you let him save those 10 kids? I think so, that that's a question the, fil- the film is interested in asking. Now, I think that, again, is that Superman is a different question. It's a, it's a question that is maybe right to ask, but maybe not very Superman-y it, to ask. That it's a good point. You, uh, um, you make a good point. I mean, the, the concept of moral triage, uh, you know, I've, I've heard it also called, uh, um, you know, like in, in wartime, uh, you have to, people have to engage in what they call terrible arithmetic, uh, where to a certain extent you have to play things by the numbers. This one person has very small chance of surviving, I could help these other four. Uh, You know, it's a horrific situation to be in, a very real situation to be in. Um, You know, in Marvel uh, with Infinity War, they specifically, they dealt with that too, you know, uh, when talking about whether or not to destroy Vision. Uh, I forget exactly what he says, but Cap says something about, like, we don't count lives. That's not what we do. Whereas, you know, based on how that film ended up, if they had counted lives, they might have stopped Thanos. Uh, so it is not, I, I, think you, I think you spelled it out very well, um, and it is not an uncommon theme. Uh, however, here is what's required for that theme to work. Um, if you've got a question of, okay, I could do this short-term good, but that might give rise to a very long-term threat. The long-term threat in this case, because it's not, oh, Superman, it's it's not, oh, Clark, don't use your powers because you might lose control of your powers and then, you know, like you say, explode. It's not that. He's saying, don't use your powers because people might find out that you have powers. And ultimately, the so you ask, what is the threat in that? And the threat is, oh, those people will try to use you. They'll, you know, bad things will happen from that. On a, on a very simplified level, the threat from Clark revealing his powers is thinking, well, humanity kind of sucks. Now, this is not an unrealistic philosophy to have at all. Uh, and you know, and there's several films that play that very well. Um, but as you said, is it a philosophy that has anything to do? with Superman, which as you said, I mean, it's, it is essentially saying we are going to reject any kind of idealistic optimism and just try to play things. It, it, it is exactly the kind of philosophy that Bruce Wayne would have. Not a wrong philosophy, but I would say that it's a wrong philosophy for what this character and this story has always been trying to tell. Yeah. And I think that's where, that's where it falls apart. So while I'm, like I said, I'm captivated by the moment-to-moment drama of it. It gets very thoughtful. It makes me think things. Mm-hmm. But the story, you know, there's a there's a Superman comic book called Red Sun, which uh, which asks the question: What would have happened if Superman were to if if Kal El had crashed in communist Russia instead of, oh, yeah, of rural one. America? Um, and the thing that I think is missing here is the idea that if you have a nuclear bomb that is going to be sentient, maybe you train that nuclear bomb 
to be as capital G good as you can, to not mm-hmm. play horrible arithmetic, but rather to no matter what, do the right thing, no matter what, do the right thing, no matter what. That's what Pockhant should always be pounding into Clark because he knows that if Clark, you know, if Clark just became an an a-hole, an a-hole frat boy, that would be a real problem for humanity. Mm-hmm. And it should just be, you, you are good, be good. And the power of a father telling his son, above all things be good yeah. is is the power of the character of Pa Kent which is the idea is if you're a father whatever flaws you have the one thing you must pound into your kids always is do right do what and that's something I say to my kids no matter what you're feeling no matter what's going on if you're ever if you ever have a question about whether or not you should do something do what's good do what's mm-hmm. right and let the rest set it out do your best to do the most right thing and and that is something that i don't see happen i don't see pa Kent going going be good he's saying he's saying be careful because you know humanity sorry you're gonna laugh at this you just made me realize something i just made a connection you said uh, do the most right thing uh so in the film frozen 2 that just came out uh there is a concept in it that i absolutely adore uh that is do the next right thing it's when you're lost you you know rather than trying to think you know 10 steps in advance uh because that you know you can get far too confused and lost that way it's just like no what what's next and what's what what is the next good thing i can do um it's a very powerful philosophy but thinking of that made me think back to the original frozen uh where it is definitely an argument has been made that uh anna's or sorry elsa's parents with the best intentions in mind really screwed up poor elsa um, so essentially what this film is, what we're seeing is Pa Kent saying, conceal, don't feel. <laughs> That's amazing. That's really good. Um, okay. So, so we're going to jump over a lot of the other things, uh, that we, that, that we want to talk about. Um, and I, I, I skipped, uh, the box office and stuff, uh, accidentally. So I'll hit it right at the very end. So don't worry. Yeah. We're going to talk about that at the end, but given that the show is coming, we're coming up in an hour and I want to make sure that we have time to talk about kind of the biggest conversation. Um, which is the action in the film. Mm-hmm. And it's the film's greatest asset and it's the film's biggest problem. Um, so let's talk for a minute about the biggest asset of the film. I think that the choice to make the super characters fast is a really fun choice. It mm-hmm. gives it gives rise to... Pro- giving Superman the speed of the Flash is certainly something from the comics. It does put you in a problem when you finally get to Justice League and you're like, oh, Superman is bigger, stronger, and faster than absolutely everybody. So so you have to necessarily remove, for basically the reason he has to not be around for half of Justice League is once you introduce Superman in Justice League, you don't need anybody else. Yeah, and, and so and, making but that him is also as, a problem that the comics always have too. So that's certainly not new. And there's there there have been repeated attempts in the comics to depower Superman. Uh, most notably, uh, the comic book series Man of Steel, the same name, by uh, by John Byrne in the 1980s, took a post crisis Superman and took a post crisis Superman and made him more vulnerable. Made it so kryptonite was not as big a deal for him, but he could not, for instance, throw a planet if he needed to. Like he was much, they depowered him like 60% just to go, Mm -hmm. okay, he's still super strong and he's still like, Mm -hmm. he would still amaze us. But keep in mind that first issue of Superman was like, look how, like on the cover, look how strong he is. He's lifting a car with one hand. Yeah. And that's sort of the Superman they're trying to do. You'll hear the same, essentially, Superman's about as strong as the Hulk is the, is the concept, you know, in this movie, Superman is not as strong as the Hulk. Superman is as strong as 10 Hulks. 
and it 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 will be a problem for later films but for this film in particular the fact that superman can move as fast as he can and that action is such it's it, it does visually provide me before we get to other problems will we say that that the choice of speed does provide you a super fight that you've never seen before very true um and i'll give it i'll, I'll give it that um what is your thesis on the action of this film? Because you called the action a, a real good thing. What are your thoughts? Well, I, w- I, I think you said it, but there were aspects that I really liked and aspects that I was a little mad on. Um, you know, again, and this is sort of the difference in our perspectives. Uh, you know, you are uh, you are a storyteller, but also a filmmaker, which means that you have a better eye or your perspective is always looking for, you know, the special effects and things like that more than I am, whereas I'm still primarily just a storyteller. Uh, so to me, the, you know, the flaw of this film the flaws of this film uh its primary issue is the story uh as opposed to the action um but that being said there were elements there were times in the film where even i uh was looking at it and saying ah those special effects are not there mm, I'm, it just it looked too computer graphic-y and especially come to think of it some of uh, it's wonderful i, I want to say some of it's wonderful the, oh, so, yeah, the, the and, dust swirling before he takes off yeah was and let me maybe my maybe my favorite addition to the super Superman visual canon is the idea that if he's defying gravity, then the stuff underneath him would necessarily be affected by that. Yeah, was yeah, that's that's true. was I loved that, and I I came up with this this, and I'll let you go back to where you. But I came up with this thing when it, when it came to filmmaking the other day because I'm coming up on the end of the edit of my most recent film, and I realized good filmmaking is just about. Not just about, but often about adding ideas. Here's another idea. Here's another idea. And mm. someone somewhere said, well, if he's taking off, because you, know, you have to I dream up the idea, storyboard the idea, and then eventually create the idea in the computer of the ground swirling. Someone thought that up and said, you know, when he's going to fly, the stuff under him must be affected by it. That's what if it kind of swirled and it raised up too? And like it, they, there was a conversation and an artist wrote that down. And, and it's just this one little visual moment that when he makes the fist on the ground, and you see the, the stuff start swirling. I get emotional. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Um, that's because they've just yeah. presented new ideas. So, so that as a as an addition to the Superman visual lexicon, I love. But that you're is right. Interesting. I want to keep. The, uh, yeah, what you can. because well, no, that details like that, I did not specifically notice that um, in the film. What I did feel was a sense of weight and impact whenever he took off. Um, and that is that is what good special effects. Uh, should do is it's little ideas like that, little things that the audience member doesn't necessarily notice, uh, but that contribute to an emotional uh, experience that they do feel. Uh, in video game design, they talk a lot of, and actually in film design, they talk a lot about it's important that hits should have impact and weight. And, you know, using, uh, you know, like in video games, they will actually sometimes, besides using a good sound effect, they will sometimes freeze the frame for just a tiniest moment whenever you hit, whenever you land a hit. Uh, And that adds to the weight of the hit, even though you don't necessarily notice, oh, they're freezing the frame there, unless that's specifically what you're looking for. Um, And you're right, the the whole dust rising up, that is a that is a perfect example of that. I will say the so not not necessarily all of the Zod fight, um, but the fight not where they're going through the buildings, but where it's almost where they're just in pure fast free flight, zooming through the buildings, um, whirling around each other. I actually, you know, I had that emotional edge of my seat moment uh, for the only time in the film where I was like, oh, yeah, like I felt a little swept up in it. 
Um, so I at least really, really enjoyed how they handled, uh, like I said before, you know, foes in flight. Uh, I thought that was great. And I think that's maybe one of the first times that I've seen it really well done in film. So I'm going to, I'm going to name an instance in this film, an instance in another film, and then we're going to have our big discussion, which Mm. is this. There's an instance in this film where, where he has to go do fight the other world engine. And he looks over to Lois and he goes, you might want to back up. She takes a step back. He goes, you might want to back up a little more. And she looks at him, smiles, takes a step back. And then he takes off and the ground cracks underneath of him. Mm -hmm. And this is a man who can levitate. Like, he doesn't necessarily have to crack the ground under him. He absolutely can fairly quickly raise raise himself up 100 feet in the air as fast as like a fast rising balloon and then take off hard from there. And that would have taken Mm -hmm. less time than talking to Lois Lane. But darn it, he's going to crack the ground when he takes off. Mm -hmm. You bet he is. Um, that's the first moment. I'm going to add to that moment and, and my clear problem with that moment to a moment from Superman 2 where Superman is fighting Zod in the middle of Metropolis and stuff's happening and Superman yells at Zod, no, Zod, the people! Where Superman is clearly very, very concerned that yep. people are going to die because of what Zod is doing. No, Zod, the people! No, come on! He's like kind of going, come on, dude! Like, they, what are you doing? They're, what are you doing to them? Come on! It's all he cared about. The, the, the way that you made Superman care, if he can't be beaten physically, is that he cares so much about people that mm. he's going to do everything he can to save them up to and including killing himself. Yeah. So the fight that in this film, while notably epic, the, at the end of The Matrix 3, you have a fight in a digital world where the buildings exist, but none of the people are real. So watching them smash into each other and crash and be destroyed is something that you're, you know, that you're kind of okay with. The other thing about The Matrix Revolutions is that The Matrix Revolutions... uh is deliberately set in the rain and is avoiding a certain visual aesthetic that we might find somewhat disturbing uh, in 2013 and certainly for the rest of my life. Because I am, frankly, unable to enjoy... Like, I enjoyed the Smallville fight. The Smallville fight I'm kind of okay with. Mm -hmm. I am unable to enjoy watching skyscrapers be smashed into and fall. It was one of the things um, that I liked the least about Age of Ultron uh, as well. It's even if you're trying to, and because here's the thing, it's even if you're trying to make a point as a filmmaker, um, you know, because I'm sure, yeah, no, nowadays, no one just accidentally does that. If they, if they, you know, if they're choosing to have a skyscraper crumble and fall, they, they know that it's going to reference the events of September 11th. Um, well, okay, so let me, I, let me add to that. Let me give, fil- let me give filmmakers a small pass on this. Filmmakers are trying to create the most the most realistic reality they can. There's a movie called Deep Impact. And in Deep Impact, a huge giant tidal wave hits New York and the Twin Towers are still up there at that point. And they hit one of the tin Twin Towers and it falls over and smashes into the one next to it. And that doesn't bother me even now seeing it because that's what they thought might happen if the mm-hmm. buildings got hit. But now if you're a filmmaker and you want to see what is it like if there's a major building accidentally destroyed in a highly populated urban center, we have all the visual references for that. And so what the filmmakers do is they're like, okay, the building blows up. What does that look like? If they're using a computer to reproduce human skin, they look at human skin. If they're looking, if they're looking at something to reproduce an F-18 in the, pl- in the air, they will look at an actual model of an F-18. Well, in this case, if they're having a building collapse in an urban center, they have the visual model for that. So 
if they are trying to make it look realistically, it is going to necessarily invoke 9-11 Im- imagery because we have that imagery as a reference point to make it look realistic. So I don't know if they're trying to manipulate you in this. As a matter of fact, I always go far as to say is they're not and that they are there's a callousness. When you talk about Age of Ultron, Age of Ultron had it, but did you notice that on Sokovia, like not that many people died. Everybody should have died on Sokovia, but they kept making a point of going, we're saving the people, we're getting them all out. There were surprisingly few casualties. Like they're continually yeah, no, throwing I, that at I, you. I, I agree with you on the, cal- on the callousness of it. I think that's the point. It's the, look, filmmakers who make the decision to, to say, look, I know the kind of emotional impact destroying this building might have for the audience, but I want there to be that emotional impact because of what I'm trying to say which honestly i think they did have with age of ultron like that i can respect um the but what's going on here is you almost get this sense that people didn't think about that uh it it, like the the whole thought of the oh yeah what's happening to the people in this city it was an afterthought you know it in in superman 2 you know it is very clear that clark uh wants to protect all of humanity he loves humanity in this film you're left with the idea that clark wants to protect the humans in his life which granted is more in line with what most humans actually think and do in their actions but again that's not what makes a superhero yeah i think there's a the one thing that that batman v superman and we'll get to it next week but one thing it does very very well is it puts bruce wayne at ground zero of this film essentially blaming superman the whole film blames superman and says i think batman v superman frankly makes this film better by going yeah superman you done effed up like you 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 this was a bad call that you made why did you do this the world is mad at you for doing this um, I think that Batman v Superman, by giving the, cons- the the events of this film consequence, is makes this film somewhat better because they're going, yeah, you weren't thinking, and I what agree you did with was that a bad to thing. a. I agree with that to a certain extent. Although I would say I think you could make an even more interesting choice, which would be if this film, if you still had Clark desperately trying to save people and only being able to do so, like Metropolis still getting destroyed, um, but Clark still doing the best he could with that. But from the outside, yeah, I think all that all that Bruce sees is Metropolis being destroyed. So, which would then set up an even better uh, an even better conflict between you know Bruce saying, "Look at all you did," and you know you don't care, and if Clark is just like, "No, I care a lot," like you're. Like, I think there's a, a better misunderstanding to set up there. Yeah, I think the problem that I have is, you know, I, when we go back to Age of Ultron, when they're, for when in, for instance, when uh, when they are near Wakanda and um, and the Hulk is fighting Iron Man and they're smashing through a city, but they're deliberately going to empty buildings and stuff like that, even to the point where where Tony's like, hey, buy this building so nobody even has to pay for it. Like, let's just make sure mm-hmm. everyone's good with this. Um yeah. I'm sort of okay with the level of destruction that that has. And even that film's like going, yeah, but people are still really, really, really bothered by this. Yeah. From the moment that the... It's, but I'm still able to appreciate the fun of the battle and the destructiveness yeah, of the battle. And I'm still able to do it in okay. the Avengers. Um, in the Avengers, I'm able to do it because you get the sense that, yeah, this is a major thing that's happening, but there are people on the ground keeping people safe. It, something about it doesn't ring the same way. Oh, I From thought the, the, Avenger, the, the Avengers engine, handled urban warfare with heroes so, so well because you well, saw them the, from the From the minute that the world engine appears in Metropolis, they're showing people in cars screaming, being thrown up into the air and then smashed onto the ground you're like oh they're dead they're mm-hmm. dead they just died that and they and it's not even like later on you just think oh random people in that building are, are dead but when the world engine hits they're showing you the people they bring their face up into a close-up and you hear them screaming as though on the way down as they then get smashed and yeah. 
I am not having a good time. I'm horrified. And I understand that's supposed to be impactful, but I am it's not impactful in any kind of fun way. I am I am bothered by this. I am I am mm-hmm. and I just keep getting bothered. And then after the world engine has essentially like if you look at it, they're they're standing in the middle of if you think about it, where he meets Lois is the center of Metropolis, which is essentially ground into dust at this point. Yeah. It's dust. You think you think about it, it looks like they're standing in the middle of an open field. No, because Perry White is there, which means that's the center of Metropolis. They it's are standing in literal right ground now. zero. Yeah. Yes. Um. And even worse than ground zero, it's 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 nothing but wasteland, just flat. It's flattened, and he comes up to Lois. And she kisses him and and they're like, yeah, the jokey jokey kiss joke. Ha 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 ha. Gotta go fight. Like, like at no point does he look around and go, oh no. He's just like, I'm doing a kiss and a joke now. Ha ha ha. Isn't I, it ironically, funny to have a big old... Th- ironically, it's like, look, we keep telling DC, no, no, we want more. <laughs> we want more humor. We want more lighthearted moments. The whole, the whole line of, you know, things go downhill from a kiss, from a kiss or from the first kiss and him saying, I think that only applies if you're kissing humans. That's a great line. So it's just like the, I mean, thanks for trying, but you chose literally the worst possible moment to do it. (laughs) It's, 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 it's bad. It's, it's a real problem. And I suddenly Mm -hmm. don't like Superman anymore. With that joke after, after that kiss. I am not on his side. I'm like, you callous bastard. Like they, yeah. like, like literally millions of people, their blood are, you're walking on top of their blood right now. The ground is not dry. It's wet with their blood and you're walking on it. You're walking on it. And if you'd move just slightly faster, maybe a hundred thousand of them would still be alive, you know, and, and, and you're walking on their blood telling jokes after a kiss. Hey, let's have a fight. And just smash through buildings. And I said this time uh, to Mrs. J, I, I looked at her and I said, hey, you know, think about those people. The world engine finally stopped. And like, oh, my gosh, we survived. We did it. We are the, oh, my gosh, we survived. Are you okay, honey? Yeah, I'm okay. Yo, boy, that was so close. Boom. Done. Like, like it's just, let's terrorize Metropolis more. Are you enjoying this Superman fight at the, the end? Because Which, which makes the, the final moment in the train station interesting. Because what we have in the train station is uh is ironically an actual traditional comic book superman uh dilemma in that zod is specifically saying i am going to kill these people who are right in front of you um unless you do something and you know in the decision that clark makes to you know to break his neck and to kill in that moment he is saying please don't make me do this please don't make me do this and then he's forced to do it and it destroys him um, you know, he he has the fall to his knees, uh, you know, rage to the sky moment. That scene would have worked really, really well in a traditional Superman film. Um, you know, if you had if you had a traditional Superman film where you've got you know Boy Scout Clark Kent doing all these things, trying to save all these people, but always being like, nope, we don't kill. That's not what we do. Um, and then put that scene in there where he was actually forced to do it. Um, that would be a really, really bold statement because normally Clark always finds a way to do it without killing anybody. Like, and in the comics, Superman totally kills all the time. By the way, he does. He <laughs> does not have. He does not have Batman's. He never even pretends to have Batman's ethos of like I don't kill. He absolutely kills. He's fine. Oh, really? 
I seem to. Well, yeah, he's it's okay. So it's not it's hard and fast for for Clark. But regardless, the that scene would work really really well in a uh, in a um, in another film. The problem with putting it into this film is first the we haven't really set up Clark caring that much about anyone else who's been killed in this battle, uh, and second we haven't really set up anything much about Clark not wanting to kill anybody. So the so his moral quandary kind of comes out of nowhere uh, in it. It's like when he's saying, you know, when he's telling Zod, don't make me do this, you get the sense of it's like, oh, oh, well, look at that. I I, I guess he doesn't like killing anyone, um, which it, it's, uh, you know, we'll call it Chekhov's moral ethical decision that, you know, you need well, to I set think, up yeah, I think it goes on. right to your, it, it goes right to, right to your point before that Clark cares about the people in his life of which Zod is one. Uh, Zod is, is Krypton. Zod, Zod is the only other Kryptonian he has. And there's, you know, by killing Zod, it affects him. So he's really upset by it. He's not upset that, mm. oh, I had to kill a being. He's like, man, I wanted more Krypton for me. <laughs> um, it's, it's, you know, or maybe, maybe he's just mad that he didn't get a chance to kill that family. I don't know <laughs> at this point. <laughs> it's, it's, it is a fatal, fatal flaw that mm. the action at the end, which is so the, the, they're still not good at rendering people. The people still look fake, but they're really good at debris now. The debris is yeah. awesome. Um, it's it looks you know it's it's cool, but yeah, complete with dust clouds is, and it's well done. Like it's that's disturbing. Thing. That aspect is well done. It's disturbing and upsetting to watch them fight. And a Superman movie should not be disturbing and upsetting. The bad guys should do bad stuff that kind of disturb and upset you and go, man, I really want Superman to stop them, but. This movie, you you should want in a superhero battle, you should want the battle to go on forever. Like the Battle of New York, I could have done 20 more minutes of the Battle of New York if they just kept doing the same thing that they were doing. I thought it was awesome. In this, from moment one, I just want to be like, guys, stop fighting. Stop fighting. Please stop fighting. Please just stop fighting for a minute and go. Can you take it somewhere else, please? And I found myself feeling that way. Like, like. Please stop. Please stop. Don't no more. No more. No more. Please no more. Please no more. Um, it was um it's not that I got tired of the action or tired of the fight. It's that I actively wanted them to stop fighting because of the destruction that they were causing in Metropolis. And it was um it, it's it's a, a problem when the film is hinges on you being invested in that action. I was invested in the action stopping. I actively also, wanted it, it to stop. That it was the the biggest example. You, as you're watching it happen, it is the thing that really crystallizes suddenly the realization this movie doesn't really care that much about people. Like and then like by watching that destruction there, it then sends you going back thinking through all the rest of the movie and realizing there is, there is a callousness to this film. Uh, it's not just the final scene, but the final, or not just the final fight, but the final fight really is like the, the prime example of its callousness. Yeah. And I think that, you know, they do their best to course correct. When we get to Batman v Superman, there's, you know, another being that causes wanton destruction, but they, they throw a line in. He went over to this Island. That's deserted. Great. Do it. That's what you do. Do mm-hmm. it. Go to yeah. the, an area that's deserted. You know, Look, have, there's a have lot the military of co- there's go. There's a lot of go- comic conventions that we know are formulate conventions, but we're okay with throwing, but we're okay with them being in there. That is definitely one of them. Superman, this is the military. We've evacuated South, South Metropolis. Please take the, the, the fight there. I'm on it, General. Yeah, that's, mm-hmm. Boom. Done. Yeah. Like, that's what you need to do because, because I feel it's like Superman's the worst thing to ever happen to Earth. Like, if you think about it, this is the worst. Clearly, this will be the worst thing to happen happened to America since World War II. 10 times 9/11 is what you've just mm-hmm. had happen in Man of Steel. And had 
Clark never turned on his stupid ship, this never would have happened. Superman caused this, and he is mm. the worst thing to ever happen to Earth. And everything that happens after uh, the, the events of Justice League, Man of Steel, or, or Batman v Superman, the other people who are going to die as time goes on. I guess not Justice League. Now, I guess it's I, I, finally going to end no, up being good to, that he exists. Be, that may but, be yeah. exact. That may be exactly what Zack Snyder was trying to do, and exactly what he was trying to say. If so, he achieved that. It was just absolute. Like he just achieved that with absolutely the worst character and story to try to do that for. Like, like a movie about, hey, Superman screwed up and destroyed Earth. That might even be a story that you could tell. I can guarantee you literally nobody would walk out of that movie saying, that was the Superman story I wanted to see. I know. I know. The, they, you should be asking the question about whether or not having a Batman is a good idea. That's an okay question to ask. Superman mm-hmm. should be, it's so, thank God we have a Superman. Yeah. It's like that's it's that's what Superman should make you feel. And instead, that, I'm like, man, I wish this guy never showed up. I yeah. wish this guy never showed up. Um. All right. So um. So on a scale of one to five million people decimated in a single afternoon, uh, what would you rate uh, Man of Steel? Oh, wait. All I'm right. sorry. Wait. Before you say anything, I, I didn't mm-hmm. do my tale of the tape. Uh, this oh, film yeah. was released on June 10th, 2013. Uh, uh, in that was its premiere. Uh, it's was then wide released the day or four days after on June 14th. 14th, running 143 minutes it was uh, a budget of 225 to 258 million dollars rule of thumb is that when you take what the theaters cut from that and also the production budget you usually say that the entire budget of the film is twice that giving it a budget of somewhere between 450 and 512 million dollars it came in with a box office of 668 million dollars which is a lot of money but it's not like the batman set the world on fire money it still mm-hmm. was enough to warrant uh, a sequel in that it made 100 million dollars profit and successfully brought Superman back into the public consciousness. Um, it's going to be followed uh, in a couple of years and by us next week with Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice. Um, but uh, but Man of Steel did one thing that it meant to do, which was bring Superman back. Everyone knew who he was and darn it had an opinion because everybody saw it. Everybody knows the story now. But uh, but is it worth knowing? What are your thoughts? One to five. All right. So from a from an objective standpoint, um, you know, look, special effects were fun in this. Uh, you know, the story didn't completely fall apart. There was this would normally be the sort of thing that I would rate a three, which is I would walk out of a movie theater saying eh, that wasn't a waste of money. Uh, it was fine. Um, but here's the thing. So I'll, I'll just tell a quick story about this. So actually, about maybe a year after 9/11, uh, I was in a book store and I saw a comic book. It was a comic book. um, Essentially, it was an anthology of, you know, essentially the comic book writers had put together of stories that in some way were inspired by uh, the events of 9-11 and how we dealt with it. And the very first comic was Superman flying through, uh, you know, just flying around the world and through the city. Um, and his narration was, you know, there's a lot that I can do. I can run faster than a speeding train. I can fly around the world and do that. Like, it's it's him just saying, these are all the things I can do. Um, and then he says, but the one thing that I most want to do, I can't, which is to somehow come out of these pages um, and be the real hero that, you know, the world needs sometimes. And then the final page of that story is just a, it's a splash of the New York police and firefighters and Superman saying, but thankfully this world has heroes 
superheroes of its own. I mean, I'm sitting there weeping in this bookstore. Um, and to me, like, that's Superman right there. Superman, it's not about his powers. It's not about this. It's about, you know, it's about a heart that is capable of, you know... Every amount of uh, superhuman strength that his muscles are capable of, uh, his heart is capable of superhuman love. Like, that's incredibly cheesy to say, but I'm sorry, that, to me, that is my Superman. And this film was such a rebuttal of that, um, that at least from my own perspective... Um, and I know that there are some people who would, re- you know, who appreciate a darker take on Superman and everything because he functions better sometimes as a symbol, as a character. I I get that. But I, I can't give this film any more than a two. I'm I'm tempted 1.5 just because it of uh, <laughs> what what it does. Uh, and Justin, uh, you will appreciate this is it. This approaches doing something unforgivable with a character. Yeah, I think that you I think you're absolutely right. It's hard for me as a filmmaker to think about how to rate this film because mm-hmm. it's like if I went to a fine restaurant. There's a restaurant here near near um, in Maryland, uh, uh, close to where I live, um, called Volt, and it's it's one of these highfalutin, you know, gold star, you know, guy was on Food Network restaurants. And if I were to go to Volt and go go, I'm going to pay 150 dollars for my meal tonight, and they were to bring me out, you know, they were to bring out the different pieces. We're going to do a deconstructed meal for you, and here's uh. Here is uh, a filet mignon, uh, perfectly cooked. And uh, over here, um, we also have um, this amazing, uh, th- this amazing seafood chowder that we've made for you, and it's and it's it's wonderful. And uh, over here, we have a a, a dark a, a dark walnut raspberry vinaigrette, and we're following it by a chocolate lava cake uh, over here. And they they you know just just you know brought it out, and and here's a, a glass of Chardonnay, and we're going to follow it up by the world's best espresso. Um, and then they're like, now that we've shown you your dinner, um, we're going to put all in a bowl and chop it up and you can eat it all together. <laughs> um, the problem I have with this film is that it's beautifully shot. It's really well acted. The scene to scene moments are done. They achieve everything that they're trying to go for. The special effects are spectacular. The fact that they use the speed and the action is good. They're casting of Henry Cavill. He's a really good Superman. Um, Pa Kent is, is, despite the things he says and does, is a really good Pa Kent um, uh, in the way that he's performed. Um, the, uh, the, you know, Diane Lane is, is, is Ma Kent also really good. Lois Lane is, is perfect. I, we didn't even talk about Lawrence Fishburne is Perry White, which I think is a, is a, is a great choice. Um, the music is great. I, everything's great. It's all really great. And then you put it into a bowl together and you're like, you're like, Hey, if you want to do the, you know, here, if you wanted to do like a, a different ending to Watchmen where there was a Watchmen battle in the middle of a, a city and you're like, Oh my gosh, this is what would happen if two superheroes actually fought in a city. I would walk away from that dark film going, Oh my gosh, that was spectacular. It really mm-hmm. moves you and go, gosh, this is what would really happen. That's really, really, really well done. Everything. Michael Shannon is spectacular. Everything in this film is super well done. And then you put it in a bowl and you realize, and you called the bowl Superman. (laughs) He said, wait a minute. Hey, you forgot to put any Superman ingredients in this bowl. Nothing about this bowl feels or looks like Superman. And also, you don't put these things all together. You don't mash it up. This tastes like crap now. (laughs) All All your work making this wonderful pieces. You put together and nobody wants chocolate, lava cake, Chardonnay, coffee, filet mignon <laughs> salad. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. I, I, on its merits alone, I would almost give it a four. 
and for its choices, I want to give it a one. And I'm going to, I'm going to come down on a two because what's most disappointing is how good this film almost is. Mm, Like if just like, if the filmmakers had just made different choices, they are clearly incredibly capable. Everybody is doing a plus work. It's like somebody did an a plus science experiment and we're like, like, like a college level. They, they did a science fair experiment. They're like, this is college level. This is like stuff that's being looked at. MIT is looking at the science experiment that I did and, 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 and saying what an amazing science experiment it is. I don't understand why I got an F and somebody goes, because this is creative writing class. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, like, yes, they did a very, 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 very good job making a thing that they absolutely, absolutely, absolutely should not have made. I, that's <laughs> a really good way of putting it. It is, it is, it is a masterful, magnificent, bad idea. The good thing about this film is that I, I, I was absolutely down for a sequel. Um, I, I did so love the parts of this film that I wanted to see them do different things. Mm-hmm. Um. I absolutely wanted to see more Amy Adams. I absolutely wanted to see more Henry Cavill. And I even kind of wanted to see more Zack Snyder because I I sort of felt like the problem with this film was its connection to the Dark Knight. And that was the Christopher Nolan connection I felt was the problem that that the film was was trying to tread in in the dark paths of of Christian Bale's Batman. And yeah, I think now that I think in that ha- case it turns out that no, that was just Snyder. But at the time, but at the time, you're like, what was Snyder known for? Was for the visually astonishing things he could do, and it it accomplished those. So I felt like, okay, the next film is going to be Batman versus Superman. Okay, they're going to get it this time. Mm. It's going to be really good this time, um, and we will find out whether or not. It was really good. Or if I am once again going to be screaming that the parts of the film are so good, but it's just a film they shouldn't have made. Uh, Spoiler alert. They cast Ben Affleck as Batman and everybody thought he was going to suck. Did he? We'll find out next week. But for now, my name is Justin. And my name is Arthur. And hey there, true believers. Just don't kill lots of people. I'm not even going to tell you to stay super. Don't be super. This film is not totally super. It's not totally super. Don't be super. Being super is a really bad idea. Just be a good person. Stay a good person. That's how I'm ending the podcast. Don't stay super this week. Just do good. Say they're true believers. Whatever you do, don't be super. That's what they should end the podcast with. I'm so angry. Okay. I guess stay super, but just don't kill anyone. Now that you've finished the show, be sure to subscribe so that you never miss an episode of the Totally Super Podcast. Also, if you like this, you should head over to geeksradio.com or search Geeks Radio wherever you listen to podcasts. There you can find Trek Off, the not safe for work Star Trek podcast with Justin and Alexia. So search for Trek Off, search for Pop Off, search for Geeks Radio, and just thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of Enlight Entertainment. 